Hello, welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And our guest today is Jessica Mock, who is The Daily Journal reporter, who covers one of the most interesting and important current areas of California law. She is the reporter at The Daily Journal that covers the labor and employment issues, especially the most recent legislative issues. And if you've been reading The Daily Journal, on a regular basis, which I hope you have. You will have seen her byline virtually every day. And we're going to be talking with Jessica about some of those important pieces of legislation and what the pressure is, what has happened to lead to them. Jessica comes to us, to the Daily Journal. She's been covering this beat for a while. Before covering labor and employment, she covered criminal procedure and criminal law cases for the Daily Journal. She previously had reported on finance issues and other issues. She has her undergraduate and graduate degrees from McGill University in Canada. And we really welcome her. And Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be with us here for this podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Howard. We've seen a a range of new labor laws and and bills come out of the legislature and signed by the governor. But what was the environment? What were the pressures? What were the forces on on the legislature and the governor in terms of adopting so many of the labor and employment pieces of legislation we'll be talking about? Well, I think the pandemic, obviously, and the protests around race this year have really exacerbated existing tensions between workers and their employers. So I think on the one hand, um, many workers are afraid for their safety, especially if they're not able to work remotely and had to continue working on site throughout the pandemic. And of course, a lot of workers are going back to work when there is still a lot of um, cases of the coronavirus in California. A lot of workers are struggling financially, um, they're struggling with childcare, with taking care of family members, and life is incredibly stressful for many people right now. Many people may not feel like their employers are being supportive. And with regards to the impact of the protests, I think many people have felt newly emboldened to share experiences of racially motivated discrimination and harassment in the workplace. And this kind of looks like what happened during the Me Too movement, which sparked a lot of conversations around gender-based discrimination and harassment in the workplace. Well, this has led to some specific bills that have really increased obligations on employers. For example, you you mentioned concerns about uh, the racial issues and identity issues. SB 973, to start out with one of the legislative examples, imposed additional obligations on employers uh, with regard to those issues. What what did SB 973 do? Right. So first, I do want to say that even given um, all the challenges that employees are obviously facing right now, employers are struggling too. So many companies have lost a huge amount of business during the pandemic, and they're just trying to stay financially afloat. But on top of that, they're grappling with a tidal wave of new emergency laws and regulations that are changing almost daily. Well, specifically, uh, SB 973, for the reasons you've talked about, imposed reporting requirements on employers, didn't it, to report on gender, race, and, and ethnicity? And what, what are the obligations placed on employers by that bill? 
Well, it requires California employers, um, private California employers with 100 or more employees to annually submit pay data to the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, which is um, the state equivalent to the EEOC. Um, And employers, when they submit this data, they're going to have to organize it by gender, race, ethnicity, and their job category and submit it to the DFEH um, every March. And the idea behind the bill is to better help employers and the DFEH identify potential patterns of wage disparities. Um, But it's really modeled on a federal effort that was actually abandoned by the EEOC last year. So under the Obama administration back in 2016, the EEOC said it would change an annual survey Um, so that it included a form that employers would have to complete that has pay data, the pay data of their employees, and it also organizes that data by ethnicity, race, and sex. Um, And the Federal Office of Management and Budget initially approved the change to this um, survey, but last September, the EEOC said that it was not going to ask the office to renew its request um, to collect pay data through this survey. And so this new state legislation really aims to replicate um, what was proposed to be done through the EEOC, but on a state level. Now, in addition to 973, which is the reporting requirement, uh, placed for the for the kind of reasons you've talked about and against the background of uh, the of the Obama administration uh, rules being changed by the new administration. You mentioned the impact of the pandemic and COVID. One of the bills that's gotten a great deal of notice is AB 685, imposing obligations on employers to notify employees about any COVID-19 potential exposure. How does how does AB 685 work? Right. And AB 685 is one of those bills that really impo- that a lot of employers say impose uh, another burden on them on top of all the other COVID-related regulations and laws that they suddenly have to follow. So the bill really says after an employer finds out that their employees may have been exposed to the coronavirus, they have 24 hours to notify their employees, 48 hours to report to their local public health agency. And employers have to maintain records of these notices for at least three years. So that goes into effect January 1st of next year. So on January 1st, employers will have to, this becomes an obligation. And at that point, if there's been any current exposure that's available, the employers will have to make this report and employers will have to do, I take it, what investigation is necessary or reports that is received about potential uh, exposure for COVID to employees. So this imposes, and I take it this is one of the ones, employers are really quite concerned about AB 685 because of the burden and the potential liability that that can follow. So it's one of the legislative responses signed by the governor uh, that, again, imposes these requirements on employers, but in the interest of of protecting employees and their concerns about about the pandemic. Now, there is another COVID-related legislation. Uh, SB 1159 involves 
uh, a presumption that if an employee got COVID, it was caused at work. How does SB 1159 work here? Let's back up for a minute. So back in May, really at the height of the pandemic, Governor Gavin Newsom issued an executive order that a lot of employers were unhappy about. And it created a rebuttable presumption that certain employees who test positive for COVID-19 contracted the virus at work. And obviously, employees were unhappy about this because it placed yet another burden on them and exposed them to more liability at a time when they were already struggling to keep up with um, all these new rules. Uh, it, it's The employers were concerned about potential liability on them here. And SB 1159 is the legislative version of that. So it only applies to first responders, healthcare workers, and employees who employers have five or more employees, but they also have to test positive during an outbreak at their workplace. So it's a little more limited, I believe, than the executive order. And who does it apply to in terms of five or more employees, to all employers that have five or more employees or just within these limited categories? Um, So it's any employer that has five or more employees, um, but in that situation, the employees who's filing this claim would also have to test positive during an outbreak at their workplace. But uh, under SB 1159, if an employee uh, employed at at a business that employs five or more people does test positive, there is a presumption under the bill that it was caused at work. Uh, in terms of when it occurred, it, it go it, it starts out as a presumption of it occurring at work if there is a positive test. So, if a worker were to file a claim, their employer would have to prove, um, and this would be very difficult. They would have to prove that their worker didn't contract it in the workplace. By shifting the presumption, it, it basically becomes extremely difficult as a procedural matter. Uh, because now the burden is to prove that it didn't occur at work and that uh, probably would require finding out how it did occur specifically to each individual and what environment in order to rebut that presumption. And so COVID had a broad effect. It was not only in the legislature, but we also have seen a time where collective action by employees has really uh, been diminished for a whole range of reasons. I mean, the decline of the private sector labor unions, uh, and and the reliance, and we'll talk more about independent contractors, but individual relationships by employers with employees. And there was one a serious discussion about the need uh, to develop mechanisms for employees to engage more in concerted activities, some of the labor laws call it, or to organize together in groups. And one of the results of that didn't come out of the legislature, but came out of L.A. County, involving public health councils. How do, how does that work? So this summer, Los Angeles County, um, their board of supervisors approved a motion to launch what they called public health councils. And what these public health councils are, are worker-led groups that will collaborate with third-party organizations that are certified by the LA Department of Public Health. And these groups work with these third-party organizations to monitor and report violations of COVID-19 safety in the workplace. 
And the argument for forming these groups is really that workers, because they're in the workplace every single day, or um, at least definitely more than third parties might be, they're more familiar with workplace dynamics and what may or may not be safe. And so they may notice things that a third party may not. And the other important thing about these um, public health councils is that these workers who are in these groups and these public health councils, they are protected from retaliation from their employers, which is definitely a concern that a lot of workers have um, when it comes to reporting COVID-19 safety violations. Yeah, this is uh, it's interesting that the, the protection against retaliation was included because in all concerted activity, uh, there is a risk of retaliation. And so much of the federal labor laws and analogy, the National Labor Relations Act and, and, and other labor statutes uh, really impose limitate and impose uh, prohibit any retaliation and enforce liability for retaliation as a way of protecting workers uh, in order for them to have concerted activity without risk. And so these provisions really try to mirror the protections that are otherwise available, have been otherwise available under the various Labor Relations Act to permit concerted activity. There's always been a widespread feeling that the, the way to protect concerted activity and make people feel confident, employees feel confident, that they can engage in concerted activity is by making sure that there are protections against retaliation. And that's the background that was included by the county action in these, in these uh, public health councils. And it's an important concept that runs through all of the labor law protections. And it's not only the county, and it's not only it, what we've talked about, but, but the legislature also enacted special protections for farm workers uh, concerning COVID in AB uh, 2043, AB 2043. What, what protections for farm workers did the uh, legislature pass and the governor sign in, in, in that bill? So just by way of background, to give you a sense of what farm workers are going through, um, this summer there was a widely circulated survey put out by the California Institute for Rural Studies, which is a nonprofit organization. And the survey found that farm workers in California were far more likely to contract COVID-19 than workers in any other industry. Um, farm workers are usually essential work. Well, they are essential workers who are often compensated quite poorly, and they don't always get all of the labor protections that workers in other industries enjoy. So um, this summer, I talked to attorneys representing agricultural employers. They said that the food industry has always been held to pretty high workplace safety and sanitation standards because workplace safety is so closely tied to the quality of their product. But with the pandemic, there's been there have been a lot of new, different types of hazards that are unprecedented. Um, so, for example, in May, I heard from some farm worker advocates that they've been seeing an influx of new workers from other industries, um, industries that had been laying off or furloughing a lot of people. So there were more people working with them all of a sudden. And farm workers usually also live in close quarters. So what Assembly Bill 2043 does is it requires the state to be more proactive about ensuring that farm workers are safe. Um, so 
The bill requires the state to distribute information in English and Spanish about best practices around COVID nineteen safety.、Um, the state has to create an outreach campaign, and agricultural workplaces will、um, have to submit regular reports. About investigations around COVID nineteen. Yeah, I know the numbers and the people that are involved are stunning. And of course, in terms of what you talked about, in terms of inequality and unequal impacts, I know there've been reports in in Monterey County, for example,、uh, that where farm workers live, predominantly Latino,、uh, in East Salinas,、uh, there's a huge impact. Seventy percent of the or a large, very large percentage approaching that. Of of the positive reports for people who have contacted COVID are in that community, in East Salinas, while along the coast and in, in the other in the other areas in Pacific Grove and other places, Monterey and Carmel,、uh, the percentage is much lower. So the burden of COVID has fallen、uh, on the farm workers who predominantly are Latino, and there's concern about the inequality of risks about. What's falling on essential workers as well as well, and a desire to move aggressively to deal with that.、Uh, this is one of the things that's happened, and, and the other thing、uh, that is being applied is that the color coding, the state color coding for risks of COVID,、uh, takes account of the numbers in the entire county,、uh, not simply in specific areas of counties in California, and it's a way of incentivizing counties. Uh, to lower the incidence of COVID, where it has fallen disproportionately, so this particular issue that twenty forty three attempts to deal with、uh, in terms of farm worker protection is an issue that cuts across employment patterns. As you said, people who now losing other jobs but moving into farm work, it cuts across the incidence of COVID positive tests, cuts across the issues of inequality. And the variety of ways that the state is attempting to deal with this, so that dealing with the employment concerns and the exposure to COVID in the farm worker area is simply another illustration of of how COVID has impacted、uh, employer employee and and labor relations. We've we've reached that point. We're talking about this in the context of the labor laws in California, the impact of COVID. We've been talking with Jessica Mock. Who covers this regularly for the Daily Journal and brings so much of her insight into people that she speaks with regularly? Before we continue, we'll take a break, and you will be able to hear how you can get MCLE credit for this. Listening to this podcast,、uh, listening to it, you can reach out to the Daily Journal. You can get MCLE credit,、uh, and you will now hear how you can do that with some other announcements as well. So let's take a short break. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com/mcle to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit, all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. 
Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com COVID. We're now back from our break. We've spoken about the, uh, the variety of protections for workers in a variety of industries, including farm workers. There are other general laws that have put burdens on employers, if we put it that way, or additional protection for employees, the, the converse of that. Uh, and one of them is AB 2992, uh, if an generally uh, dealing with the situation of an employee who may take leave after being victim of crime or especially abuse. And that's connected with the COVID because we've seen increasing examples of, of abuse with families staying at home and, and for other reasons. So 2992 imposes limitations on employers for any employee who takes a leave after being a victim of abuse. Tell us about AB 2992. Well, it's just like you said, Howard, um, AB 2992 prohibits employers from firing, discriminating, or retaliating against workers who take time off work to seek help when those workers have been a victim of crime or abuse. It also allows workers to take unscheduled leave from work if they can provide documentation from a victim's advocate or another type of proof that they were getting treatment from an injury. And once again, we see the pattern of protection that the legislature and governor have decided needs to be done here because one of the concerns, employees at work, they've been subject to abuse, they need to take time, and there's always been a concern that if employees did that, there'd be a disagreement about whether it's necessary, and there might be retaliation, jobs might be lost. And AB 2992 is the attempt by the legislature and the governor to deal with that issue Uh, and essentially give precedence to the employee claim of having been a victim of of abuse or crime and making that determination the determination that governs the relationship and prohibits retaliation or change in status uh, of the employee uh, by the employer. Another thing that should be mentioned in connection with 2992 is another bill, uh, AB 2017, that works on the same principle in terms of what determination, who makes a determination of when leave may be taken and, and for what reason. Uh, it, it makes clear in AB 2017 that the designation of sick leave, that is whatever sick leave the employee is eligible for, the designation of, of sick leave when it's taken is at the discretion of the employee. And again, it's a way of the legislature and the governor making a judgment that given the extraordinary effects of COVID especially, that employees needed additional protection uh, from a fear of retaliation or change in employment status. And just as they did that in AB 2992, restricting the authority and power of employers uh, to disagree with the employee on, on certain things, AB 2017 gives the authority the power to determine when sick leave will be taken in the sole discretion of the employee, and the employer cannot uh, override that. Other things have come in that give further power and authority to employees. Senate Bill 1383, for example, deals with family leave obligations. What what does uh, SB 1383 provide? So SB 1383 is an expansion of the existing California Family Rights Act. Um, And that act requires employers with 50 or more employees to grant leave of up to 12 weeks every year 
to eligible employees so that they can take care of either themselves, a child, a parent, or a spouse, or they can also take that time to bond with a new child. And so what SB 1383 does is it really expands coverage um, of the California Family Rights Act to employers with as few as five employees. And it expands what are considered qualifying events. So instead of this um, leave being restricted for workers who want to take care of just themselves, their child, their parent, or their spouse, um, you can all workers can now also take this leave to care for a grandparent, a grandchild, or their sibling. Let's take a break, and when we return, we will talk about legislation regarding the Dynamics case, a previous statute passed in 2019, and what the legislature has done about independent contractors in this session. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of October 12th. The State Bar said February exam takers can expect the test to be held online. The decision comes after many problems and complaints leading up to the most recent exam that occurred over two days earlier this month. During a committee of bar examiners meeting, Interim Director Donna Hershkowitz said the court is waiting on the October exam results before making the move official. A new memo from the CDC is causing confusion and outcry about its previous guidance on an eviction moratorium. A section of its FAQ page now says it's, quote, not intended to prevent landlords from starting eviction proceedings, end quote. Critics say this is a move that allows landlords to intimidate tenants, and some speculate it's a response to multiple legal challenges brought against the CDC's original ban. These critics say it walks back protections for tenants, but the National Apartment Association said the memo was a vital clarification and an acknowledgement of the power the association holds. A criminal trial that was the subject of much courtroom drama is now over. Federal Judge Cormac J. Carney dismissed with prejudice a criminal indictment because the Central District refuses to resume jury trials. In his order, Judge Carney said the Constitution doesn't make exceptions for a right to a jury trial for emergencies or crisis. The move highlights a growing dispute between Carney and other judges, including Chief Justice Philip S. Gutierrez, over the resumption of jury trials during the pandemic. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. There are several factors of SB 1383, which has received criticism from employer groups first and most significantly, and we can't say it too much in terms of its impact, by changing the definition of covered employees from those who have 50 or more employees to those who have five or more employees, it enormously expands the number of businesses that are covered and does so for very small businesses. I mean, businesses that have five, six, eight, ten 10 employees are relatively small, are very small businesses. And because of the few number of employees, each of those employees may have, probably does have, a critical role to play in the business. But the family leave obligations, giving up to 12 weeks of leave to deal with the expanded uh, expanded ability uh, to help family members, uh, dramatically increases uh, the, the number of businesses that are covered, and especially 
the size of businesses that were discovered. And that really was a lot of the discussion here, wasn't it? Putting this burden on very small employers that only have five employees or more. And yet it was the judgment of the legislature and the governor that giving this authority to the employees, the power to the employees to help in their daily lives, to help their family members, to extend uh, to grandparents, for example, was more important than whatever disruption the authority of the employees to do this would cause uh, to the small business. And it's part of dealing, uh, I think the way to, to deal with it is to say that the legislature and governor have focused uh, really on the effects of COVID that are causing so much of this. Because when you talk about family leave obligations to help in case of sickness uh, of family members, for example, uh, one of the reasons uh, the need for that has expanded is because of uh, the, the COVID positive test results. There are simply more people uh, in California who, who are testing positive, and the legislature and governor made the determination uh, that it was more important that those people be able to get the help uh, from the employees of smaller employers than whatever difficulty the employer might have. And so the lesson for employers, the message rather, to employers in their counsel and to the labor lawyers listening who represent small businesses is that in terms of human resources policies, because these provisions are there, the several that we've talked about uh, in giving the authority to employees to make decisions uh, about taking leave or determining sick leave or here to take family leave to help others and their family and others, that the human resources policies, that's the effect of this when we talk about the effect, the legal effect on businesses. The effect on this is that counsel uh, have to sit down with their with their clients and talk about the need for changed human resources policies that take account of these contingencies uh, in terms of planning if these events occur and the employees choose to take leave or to take the 12 weeks to have planned for that to occur and have ways of bringing in others to help in the interim period. And that's really one of the messages of all these things that's so important and why lawyers are looking at these so closely, because these uh, powers to employees that we've spoken about really will call for uh, employment lawyers uh, representing employers to sit down with their clients and really prepare for these contingencies. These are not just hypothetical rights. This will occur. Employees will uh, seek the sick leave. Uh, employees will want the family law leave uh, to help their family members. And the HR policies, the human resources policies, uh, and the human resources strategy and the training of employees and the contingencies, uh, now prudent counsel and their clients, employer clients, uh, we'll all need to take account of this, not just in dealing with specific requests, but in terms of planning uh, and the kind of planning that must occur to deal with employees who are leaving and the kind of documentation that must occur in all these areas so that it's clear that if there are questions raised, it has all been handled properly. So this is something that employers have to deal with because the state of California, through the legislature and the governor, has made the policy determination here uh, that especially in this pandemic, in this COVID crisis, it is more important to give these kind of powers 
and these kind of uh, opportunities to deal with crises in their lives to employers in their sole discretion than it is to deal with what I think everyone understands will be disruptions to business. And so lawyers and clients need to sit down, not just review the law on an ad hoc basis, what happens if we get a request tomorrow, but on a planning basis, how do we plan to deal with these things uh, that may be thought of as contingencies, but they are contingencies that will occur. And counsel need to review the whole range of bills dealing with what we can call broadly, and Jessica has reported this on a daily basis in extensive writing on all these bills, what we can call broadly a major shift in power on making a range of employment decisions, a major shift in power between employers in terms of their ability to stop things from happening and in terms of power of employees to unilaterally uh, make certain determinations. Now, of course, Jessica, all this takes place also against maybe the most widely commented uh, piece of legislation that the state of California dealt with in the employment area, which is dealing with the effect of the dynamics case and what we used to refer to, what did we do refer to as AB5, which was the first legislative response to dynamics. Can you take us through some of that first, the response? And now, of course, this year there have been major amendments uh, to the original AB5 in terms of who was covered and who was an independent contractor. But let's set the plate for the discussion by going back to the Dynamics case in 2018. What happened in that case, Jessica? So what the Dynamics decision really did was it changed the standard for determining whether a worker was an independent contractor or whether they were an employee. So prior to Dynamics, the standard for determining this was the Borello test, which had 11 factors. What Dynamics did was put into place a new test, the ABC test, which has three prongs, and all of them have to be met in order for a person to be classified as an independent contractor. It's a much more rigorous test than the Borello test. And back in 2019, um, the legislature came up with AB5, which really codified the dynamics decision into law. And that's. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying, what you're saying is so critical for the, for the discussion because people complain about AB5 and what it did or didn't do in terms of not permitting people to be independent contractors. But AB5 was a reaction. It's important to start always with that understanding was a reaction to the Dynamics case. Without AB5, the new Dynamics three-part test would require, for example, in the second part, which is the critical part, second part of the test is that the pr proposed independent contractor performs work that is outside the usual course of the business of the company for which work is being done. So if you were a computer programmer, always had acted independently, uh, but you now were engaged for a project by a computer company doing programming. You were an employee and not an independent contractor. And if you were a freelance journalist who wrote columns for a newspaper or on online and you did that for a company that was in that business, the newspaper business, you didn't meet the, the number two test. So it was dynamics that created this issue in terms of the ABC test and AB5 was a reaction to all those who 
previously were independent contractors and wanted to modify the new very strict dynamics test for being an independent contractor. So have you said the first reaction in 2019 was AB5, and what did the legislature do in AB5? AB5 basically codified the dynamics decision, so the ABC test became the standard for determining the classification of a worker, whether they were an independent contractor or whether they were an employee. But it also crucially included a bunch of carve-outs for several industries, and including journalists, including freelance journalists. And so what happened after AB5 went into effect earlier this year on January 1st is there's been a lot of push from other industries who also want carve-outs for themselves. They want to be using the, they want to use the Borello test instead of the ABC test because under the Borello test, it's easier to be classified for a worker to be classified as an independent contractor. Um, There's also been a lot of litigation. So that it's, again, just to keep setting the stage, what the legislation does, AB5, it doesn't give independent contractor status by the legislation. It simply reinstates the Borello test. But it still left a great many people upset at the end of the 2019 session that they weren't included. So the legislature then in 2020 enacts another statute, AB 2257, dealing with the same issues responding to the complaints about AB 5. And what happened in 2020? What happened with AB 2257? So Assembly Bill 2257 was really a reaction to all the pushback that different industries were uh, making to Assembly Bill 5. And so the author of Assembly Bill 2257, Lorena Gonzalez, she was also the author of AB5. And what she did was she worked with different industries over the years, consulted with many people, and came up with this piece of legislation that really created more carve-outs for more industries. And so some of the professionals um, under the new bill that would now be subject to the Borello standard instead of the ABC tests include musicians, vocalists, composers, so a lot of people in the music industry, but also underwriters, appraisers, home inspectors, and certain freelance journalists and photographers. I take it what we can say about 2257 is that Neither it nor AB5 was a law that enacted general principles for the court to apply. Both of the statutes, AB5 in 2019 and now AB2257 in 2020, really simply contain a list of those employees, industries, or businesses that will be subject to Borello instead of Dynamics. And so it's a question of Don't people have to read the statute and go to that list because it's very specific, isn't it? It is quite specific. Um, Like I said, there are musicians, vocalists, people in the music industry, but also it seems to cover underwriters and appraisers and home inspectors. So it's a variety of different industries, but it's not necessarily, those industries don't necessarily seem to be connected to each other in any um, substantial way. And of course, what has created so much of the controversy here when we talk about 
what's included and what's not, have been the Uber and Lyft and the transportation services. So were Uber and Lyft granted some exemption to apply Borello instead of Dynamics, or are Uber and Lyft, as things now stand, uh, still subject to the uh, ABC Dynamics test? So under California law, they are subject to the test. Um, they always have been. There was never a carve-out for them. But obviously, um, Uber and Lyft have been pushing very hard for an exemption. They have a ballot measure that's going to be voted upon um, on November 3rd. It's Proposition 22. There's a lot of ongoing litigation uh, filed by Uber, Lyft, and other gig economy companies themselves. But also, there are two going on right now that are, have been filed by state entities, which was an interesting development this year. Yeah, so Uber and Lyft are right at the center of this. They're really the ones that uh, that created so much of the controversy here and oppressed so much. And Prop 22, I know those of us who watch television and other and receive other communications have been bombarded with ads both for and against Proposition 22. So if Proposition 22 were to pass, what what would its effect be on, on Uber and Lyft? So I guess I would start in explaining this by saying that it's different from what Assembly Bill 2257 does. And that was the bill that we just talked about that created carve-outs for certain professionals. Um, So while AB 2257 created a carve-out for certain professionals and subjected their workers to the Borello standard instead of the ABC test, what Uber and Lyft are pushing for in Proposition 22 is something entirely different. They're looking for a third category um, between an independent contractor and an employee that they can use to classify drivers um, for Uber, Lyft, and food delivery companies like DoorDash. Uh, What what will be the status of the drivers in Uber and Lyft and the other equivalent companies if Proposition 22 passes? So Uber and Lyft would belong to a third category in between an independent contractor and an employee. So one of the significant differences that drivers would enjoy is they would get certain benefits that independent contractors wouldn't get, including at least 120% of minimum wage. Um, If they work a certain number of hours, they'll get some contributions towards their health care, and they'll also get some contributions towards things like gas and vehicle maintenance. So that's very important. It's critical to realize what 2022 adds a new element to this. It talks about a third category of of employee independent contractor status uh, that gives benefits to those who otherwise might be independent contractors uh, that move closer, if not all the way, uh, to those who are employees. But this battle over independent contractors and employees is part of a larger theme that we've seen both this year. It's, it's one of the critical uh, contributions to what's happening in labor law uh, between a drive for more employment status, a drive to, to uh, permit employees to have greater concerted action. Uh, and uh, it's all part of the current environment that we've spoken about in which employee rights are being changed and challenged because of political 
uh, and other movements uh, in the larger society. And we should mention two things before completing the discussion of of dynamics, AB 2257, Uber and Lyft, and Proposition 22. There is a federal component to this also, the NLRB, which is a whole other subject, but have to be aware of the federal component, have entered decisions about an independent con- independent contractor status that are different than the ABC test and would co- could cause complications if they remain in effect, and that will depend, I think, uh, great deal on what happens on November 3rd. And in addition, uh, we should alert you on behalf of the Daily Journal that there is now a case in the Supreme Court of California that will be argued. It is now calendared for November 3rd, uh, the Vasquez case. And the Vasquez case involves whether dynamics will be applied retroactively it will be retroactive application of the dynamics case. The case was originally in the federal court. It went to the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit certified to the Supreme Court of California the issue of state law about whether the dynamics rule was going to be applied retroactively. And of course, that has enormous implications for potential employer liability, as well as a range of other issues. That's a whole additional subject. Uh, But you should be alert as we have this discussion about dynamics in 2257 and Proposition 22, be alert to the Vasquez case on the calendar of the Supreme Court of California to be argued on November 3rd. So, Jessica, we've gone over a great deal of material here, and I want to thank you for joining us. Especially want to tell everyone that what we've talked about here with Jessica, Jessica Mack, who covers labor and employment law for the Daily Journal, is really only a small part of what she has written in the Daily Journal on these issues. There is a treasure trove, a vast library of Jessica's writings, as well as the writings, columns of others, to deal with this critical issue of California employment law as it goes through dramatic changes. But we do, Jessica, want to say how much we appreciate and thank you for taking the time to join us, go over some of these critical issues, and help bring clarity to this entire dynamic area. Thanks so much for having me. 